Welcome back to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future, and our special Distinguished Sales Leadership mini-series. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. In our last episode, we spoke with Joe DiDonato of Baker Communications and Don Mastro of AVI Systems about using formal sales processes to improve sales performance. The proof is in the success of Don's sales team. While many organizations faltered during the pandemic, his sales force held the course and actually increased sales. Let's continue that conversation now as Don reveals just how much his formal systems boosted sales. Over the last year, we had 45% growth in bookings, I think I said over a year ago. Each individual, because we've had some some people leave too, you're always going to have some turnover in sales. We try to keep that low, like about 5%. You're going to have some at 100, you know, headcount, exactly. But we've grown that average booking per seller dramatically. And that all is by having the right people in the right process. You've talked a lot about people and process, but one of the first things that you focused on was putting in the right systems. And I hear a lot of focus on measures. Does your sales system feed into your measurement system and automate a lot of that tracking? There's a couple of fundamentals here that we want to look at. One is we have a process of how we sell our integration process. We call it our proven process. And there's four steps to that. That's separate from our sales management process, which is our pathways of growth process. But on our sales process, which is different than our management process, which is pathways to growth, sales process is about fundamentals of development, design, integration, and support. Then each of those lead to either what we call a business development activity, which is a sales leading indicator, a concept meeting, which is kind of a concept of who we are as an organization, a discovery meeting to go deeper dive, and then subsequent meetings to close the sale to get to a proposal right. So we've got a sales process that's consistent with the management process, Pathways to Growth. They coincide together. We're building out a brand new CRM by Salesforce. We're baking in all of this into our Salesforce dashboard in our management system to accelerate our sellers' business development activities and get in front of more clients quickly. So that also then compresses the amount of time they spend entering data and it gives you... Email campaigns, initiatives, contact points, centralized databases, looking at new construction as well, because we'll pull in a lot of new construction data because we do a lot of remodel and new construction, having the right personas and calling on the right, what we call the right personas and and teaching our salespeople to do that as well. So a lot of good things and, and Pathways has helped fundamentally kind of guide us. I agree with uh, Don on the difference between the sales process and the sales management system. Right. The process, I think, really helps you develop the consultative selling aspect of your team. Instead of them being transactional, the process helps them to step through a discovery with the individual, what to look for that they could bring into the solution that would help the customer a little bit more and so forth. So the combination of the two are dynamite. You can hear the results, 45% uptick in sales. I mean, that's fantastic. So I echo that addition to the whole process. So that's an eighth step. Sales management system, sales process, and then, of course, assessing the team and and getting them trained at both the individual seller level and at the sales manager level. And then the KPIs, which tell you if you're making progress on that. The other thing we did, which I'll uh, tag on with Joe here, is we rebuilt our sales academy. So all the content and all the strategies are built into a three-day course 
live, bring them into a centralized training center in, in Minneapolis. A lot of large organizations do this, right? I mean, we are a $300 million company with 100 salespeople, and you're always bringing talent on. So I would run two sales academies, one in the spring and one in the fall, as we brought in new sellers. It's once a year now because our turnover is lower now, which is good. But we train and develop in that sales academy, then sustainable training in Pathways to Growth Sales Management process and our biweekly national sales calls and, and tying out sales process to sales management systems and our CRM. It's all part of this community, the sales culture that we're sharing. Yeah. New product introductions, all that good stuff. Yep. Yes. All part of the training. Let's shift focus a little bit. Joe, you talked about assessing your people to see where their strengths and weaknesses are. Can you tell us a little bit more about the assessment? And as Don said, he hasn't had as much turnover, but it sounds like any sales organization is going to have some. So you're going to have continuing assessment for hire. And also over time, I assume you're also updating how you evaluate people. I wasn't necessarily a big believer in this maybe 10 years ago. I saw the value of, of creating at least a profile of, of what a good person looked like. I did that way back in Oracle days. But I didn't think we had the data to really predict behavior. I tried a lot of things. I tried DISC. You know, I tried personality tests and things like that. These would be great people to know to go to lunch with. But whether or not they were going to be successful as sellers was another thing. But recently... What I've seen is that the data science has really improved dramatically. The last five years, I've seen a huge influx of data that help us to really get the predictability level up. So we use an assessment now that has a 91% predictability factor. In fact, if the data tells you to hire that person and it's been tuned to your job and your industry, then that person has a 92% chance of being in the top half of your sales team at the end of the first year. Conversely, if you ignore that data and you hire somebody just because I've worked with this person before, I think they could be good. You know, they were good back there. But if you ignore that data, 75% of those people will leave in six months. And that's the turnover. What hurts on a turnover, uh, Don can attest to this, it takes a while to get somebody back into a territory. The average from DePaul University, they said 6.2 months. So it's going to take you 6.2 months to replace a person. That's between recruiting, hiring, onboarding them, getting them trained and so forth, reintroducing them to the clients, the other person that left, building the trust factor with that person. Sometimes that can take seven, eight months to do. And what happens during that period? Your competitors are eating your lunch. They're in there selling and, and so forth. It's a costly process. We did a calculation on the cost of replacing a million-dollar rep is a $581,700. I know the number by heart now. And that's because of the 6.2 months that you've lost. There's over a half a million right there. And then there's training. And recruiting costs about 29 Training costs about 36 roughly. That's averages. So you have all those costs stacked up. Imagine a 100-person team where you're losing 35 people. You're talking $20 million of lost opportunity and cost every year that you're dealing with with the sales team. It's not like other jobs in a company. Other, the average for the other jobs is 17.8%. So we're twice that number in sales. A lot of studies out there, I would question. Studies that say that it was bad management or the product didn't fit the market or the compensation wasn't enough. And who did you ask? The people that left? 
The real problem was hiring. You hired the wrong people to begin with. You may be looking for hunters and you didn't get hunters. Or you maybe got somebody who was good in one role, but not in another role. So I think the assessments are at that level now with that kind of a predictability factor that we just can't ignore them. One of the things that it's going to help do, number one, is show me the strengths and weaknesses before I even onboard them. You know, it cuts down on the amount of time we have to spend interviewing because if they don't get through that assessment correctly and get a higher signal out of it, then, you know, we're not even going to probably talk to that individual. We just want to talk to the handful of people that got through it as a good fit for us and their sales assessment tests. They're not personality tests. Once we know that, then I think uh, we're in a lot stronger position to onboard them. We can shorten our time. And what we do at Baker is we map the gaps to their learning objectives that we can teach them. You know, we can give them some spot kind of training, things, skills that aren't trainable. We always say you train skills, you hire attributes. So it's the attributes that you sometimes have to coach, do some coaching there. So you get a playbook and all that's doing is shortening that 6.2 months down, right? You want to get them out in the field selling. And so that's where I think data science is stepping in big time for us now. It's a lot different than interviewing for other jobs. These are people that can convince you to buy a refrigerator for your igloo. So you need some other statistics to go in there and figure out, is this person really motivated to sell? Do they really want to be successful? Do they have the skill set? And then from that point, I think the hiring stabilizes more and shortens that time. I think you heard in the first broadcast that Allison said that their interviewing time has gone down drastically and so forth. So I do think that they're at a point now where I would trust them and we do trust them. And that's what we use to bring on people at Baker. The people come on, it's the level of people are totally different than what we had before. No more relatives, no more, oh, this person worked at Starbucks. They're really, really good. No, no. Those, those aren't the people that we're bringing on anymore. They're bringing on true professionals, true selling professionals with good skills, great fits to the job. So I'm a believer now. Don mentioned earlier the connection between recruiting and getting the right people. I assume that the recruiters are using the survey results. They're able to see how people test out. Yes, that's helpful. You know, we always worry about the 9% you know, the 91% predictability. But when you look at our, how good we've done, it hasn't been great. You know, 34, 35% turnover isn't great. So I would trust the tests on an individual more so than I worked with this person in the past. They were a good person. You know, I think they do the job here. I want to know how they did on the assessment. And then I'll look at other things when you put them in front of me, I'll dig down and talk about, you know, how they go about closing business. What would they do if they heard an objection on price or if they heard an objection on the fit for their product for their industry? And then those are the things I can sort out from the best of the best. And that's what I'm looking for to hire top performers. You know, I'd say in the leadership field, something very similar. While I've been an experienced leadership development person working with high-level executives for now decades, having the right assessment really helps me laser focus on where they'll get the most value from their investment and development. So similarly, 
just good data, I wouldn't consider going to the doctor and not being assessed, Yeah. right? That they're not going to look at me and just say, you need a, a knee surgery. They're going to evaluate me. It seems that in the field of working with humans, having good data really helps accelerate the rate to productivity. That's a good example is, you know, would you trust a diagnosis from a doctor who didn't use any lab work, who didn't use uh, x-rays or MRIs to, to get to their diagnosis? That's asking a lot. And I think people now are getting used to these kinds of assessments, Ancestry, uh, 23andMe, all those kinds of tests. They have so much data now that they're getting even better and better at finding long lost relatives and that sort of thing. So I I think people are starting to see that data science has come of age a little bit more. And the more data we gather, the better it gets at predictability factors and things like that. So I I really like where it's going. It's a little bit scary because you think it's taking a human element out, but it's not because you you get a chance to look at the best of the best and you're deciding amongst that crowd versus a whole different kind of uh, set of metrics and You know, as you say 23andMe, something comes to mind. So now their assessment tells me, based on my genetics, what I'm predisposed to. So I can proactively say this thing could happen in the future. Yes. With managing humans and creating a career path, whether it's sales or leaders or sales leaders, that idea that I know what is my next step and I can proactively look at my assessment or my genome and plot out not only what do I need to do to fill the gap this week or month or year, but what gaps do I have to get to the next level? And if I am going from sales rep to sales manager, how do I fill in that set of skills as well? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You asked to take our assessment, although we assessed you as a salesperson, and I said, don't expect much. (laughs) You know, it does point to you those kinds of things that you would need if you wanted to move into that role, right? How do you have a conversation in this day and age when diversity is the top of everybody's mind? How do you justify why you selected one individual over another one? I think the assessments are a good way to remove a lot of that bias that that we bring to that role. You know, I I feel a lot more comfortable turning that part of it over to uh, the assessments and then, you know, how do you deal with a sales rep who's a top seller who wants to be a sales manager? That's a tough thing because, you know, it's going to be a double whammy, right? You're going to lose your best seller. And then at the same time, do they have the skill set? Can they be Tiger Woods' dad? You don't know. You just don't know. So you give them the test, the sales manager test, because they're there for the sellers, the managers, and the execs. And you say, let's see what it says. Let's see what it says you need to concentrate on to actually step into that role successfully. And then I think that that takes the heat off everybody because now it's not me telling the rep that, you know, I don't think you'd be a good manager. It's the data saying you don't have that skill. You don't have this coaching skill. You don't have this leadership skill and so forth. So just my two cents now. So using the example you just gave, then that top seller could fill the gaps and potentially move into a sales management role or shift their expectations? They could. It depends how they're motivated. How do you resist that tendency to go in and close the deal for somebody? You know, hit that putt for Tiger because you could do a better job or something. 
you have to resist that. You have to be a people person. You have to be able to grow your staff and be happy when they're successful. It's just different set of motivations. The tests bring that out. Over two and a half million people have taken the test now. So it's pretty reliable. Don, how are you using them, especially as you're going into mergers and acquisitions? We have a sales sustainability plan that we built years ago. Within our sales sustainability plan is a hiring process, which includes testing. Recently, we just converted over to one of Baker's modules. It's assessment testing module. We just started that licensing program recently. We were using the DISC assessment before. Then, of course, we hired the corporate recruiter, which has really helped us out. Testing and analytics, it's all part of the methodology and the hiring process. And we've documented our hiring process down to the questions that are asked by multiple managers before it gets to me is the final kind of assessment. That's all in our sales sustainability plan. There's a couple other elements that we haven't talked about that we built into this, and that's compensation design and then also in sales enablement. Because we, you'll hear a lot about sellers. I'm just kind of leading into some other thoughts on this entire sales leadership program that we've been talking about is uh, the ability to motivate salespeople financially, one, and then two, giving them the support that they need. I think part of why we've accelerated per sales bookings per seller over the last year is we've given them more inside support so they could do more business development activities. Because the key to any kind of successful seller is one that's going to go out and hunt and look for new logos and then take care of the ones that they have. Compensation is a big issue. Commission only, you're going to find today that there's commission only jobs. You're going to find that some companies will cap the uh, sales force. All those things have an impact on people. I won't put Don on the spot on this, but I'm happy to answer. Do you have a cap? No, no cap, base plus, kicker per quarter. Yep. Kind of get accelerated bookings per quarter. Then you can always, and I've done this in the past, I haven't done that here yet, but then have another element of incentive around a specific higher margin offer or product like services, right? Maybe paying a higher margin rate on that yeah. for commission rate. New logos, whatever. Whatever you're looking for. Yep. Yeah. I hated it when I saw companies put a cap on it. You know, usually it's just egos involved. You know, somebody doesn't want the sales rep make more than the CEO. Right. Well, you know, if I'm the CEO, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, that person's putting money in my pocket. So the sure way of of stunting your growth is to put a cap on your reps, in my personal opinion. Yep. Thank you for that. And for anyone who's thinking about a sales comp program and designing one right now, I hear clearly no caps. That's right. Let's talk a little bit more about M&A. As I read what's happening in the world right now, mergers and acquisitions are accelerating, and that presents a lot of issues in the sales space. So if we go back to the first 100-day plan, I assume you do something similar to the the 100-day plan when you're acquiring a company. Yeah, Don's going to be better at answering that, but we we had one customer, you know, when you think about how many acquisitions and and mergers you could do successfully in a year, what kind of a number would come in your head? Maybe one, two? They did 36 in two years, and you can imagine what the problems were. So it was all these energy companies coming together. They had different sales processes, different CRMs. You basically were struggling just to have a forecast go up from that combined group. Again, one of the first things we did for them is to get them all on the same song sheet. You have to get everybody on that same sales management process. 
then you also have to have the sales process that Don talked about supporting that. So Don, you said you're in the midst of acquisitions right now. What is AVI Systems doing? Well, a couple of things here. I've been involved in a lot of acquisitions over my 30 plus years, been part of them, been in decision-making mode of acquiring and been part of the acquisition teams, seen both sides. The mergers and acquisition integration strategy, because you need an M&A integration strategy. I'm going to talk about the big picture. In our industry, it's consolidating right now at the top. The bigger two are getting bigger. We're number three. And we're systemically getting bigger by acquiring the companies that fit our culture in our model of high design build, high margin, and not just buying market share per se. Because what's happened is the number one bought the number three recently, and the number three is starting to break up. They're going off to different companies, and we picked some people up in that as well. What we're doing is we're systemically looking every year at the right acquisition. It might be something that's relevant that we feel will have a different product set for us. It might give us something we call reach, geographical reach. In the case we bought Atlanta, we didn't have any presence in the Southeast. Now we do. Will we look at the East Coast? That's our next growth area, of course. We're looking at Texas, we're looking at California. So we're really careful about geographical presence, but the right fit. We're not just looking for a big, because the bigger the company you acquire, the more problems you have, the more integration requirements for M&A it takes to put a team around it, whether it's sales, operations, or service. In the sales world, you know, when we brought on this company out of Atlanta as an example, we're letting them run on their own right now, but they're using Pathways as a management tool. Okay, absolutely. But we haven't put them on our CRM system yet. We let them be self-sustaining for now so that we do not have a lot of impact on the company as we bring them in. They're our brand, of course, and we will gently fold them in as they buy into our culture and our management structure. And I assume that when you bring them in, integrating sales and putting them on the pathways to growth is part of the integration plan. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we're in the middle of that right now. As I mentioned before, we're in the middle of our course right now in our last cohort, and our leader here is in that cohort from Atlantic. That's where I live, and that was one of the acquisitions we did. You're just getting a lot of different issues when you when you do the mergers and acquisitions. You get two people who are calling on the same accounts. You have to sort through that. So that may be another way to do it with the assessments to see who's going to give you the better shot. But you got duplication of functions all over the place from sales operations to sales to the finance part of the company, the human resource part of those different companies. It's a big job. It's usually why you see stocks impacted when there's a merger or an acquisition. They usually go down. They know what it's going to take to put them together successfully. So, you know, you just have to think of the basics. How am I going to get a forecast together? Like take the company I said would over 30 acquisitions. Some people came in with napkins for their their numbers. You know, other people had Excel spreadsheets. Uh, Some people had Oracle. Some people had the Salesforce. You have to get them to talk. They have the same definitions. All those things come into play. It just magnifies it. So it sounds like part of due diligence then is evaluating the maturity of their sales force and sales process so that you build into the integration plan how quickly you need to make those shifts and the magnitude of shifts that you're making as you're looking at culture. Usually finance people run the mergers and acquisitions. And so you find an over concentration of due diligence on the compatibility of financial systems. 
anybody who understands what it's going to take to grow the companies as a team has got to look at sales at the same level of importance as the finance back office. It makes sense that if sales is driving revenue, you've got to pay attention to it in due diligence, in the immediate integration. Because as you said, Joe, just like turnover with salespeople during an integration, if people take their eye off the ball, you're going to lose market share. Everybody's worried about who's going to survive the merger and, and you know what's going to happen to them. It's what's in it for me kind of mental attitude that takes hold of everybody. So you got to be able to deal with all that. And it takes change management on steroids to get through it. Great. Thank you. So final question. You've both talked about sales being very competitive, that sales folks want to win. And yet sales is different than sports where you have a first place, second place, third place. You talked about the leaderboard and also monetary comp. What are some best practices you've bumped into for upping the sales close rates? For a sales seller to be highly profitable and be able to hit their targets and goals for the company, which are established during the planning year, is uh, getting involved with the customer early in the process. So that somebody's making decisions about your technology or service, the earlier you can get involved in that decision process as a seller, controlling that sale, the higher close rate you'll have in rather than getting involved late in the process and ends up being what we'll call a competitive bid. By the time it's become a competitive bid, it's too late. You're just bidding on somebody else's design or somebody else's work. So controlling the sale early on in the pipeline and getting to the right personas, the right decision makers with the right story, that's how you control sales and how you become a very successful seller. Then once you get that client, then to keep them by maintaining and managing them. Yeah. The ones that had the best close rate were the ones that got engaged early on. The consultative types of uh, sales where they did a great discovery process. They found who the decision makers were in the company. If you do all that work right up front, then closing is just a non-event. It's not like being put into a boiler room to buy a timeshare or something like that. (laughs) Don, it sounds like your experience with Pathways to Growth over the last four years has been significantly beneficial to AVI Systems. Anything you want to share as a closing that you would like our listeners to hear either as they, they are considering Pathways to Growth or as they're thinking about improving their own systems in some way. You need a sales process, both in the selling methodology of the product or service that you have for your customers. You also need a sales leadership model or management model or playbook like Pathways to Growth brought us. It's a playbook. It's like going from one team to another team in sports. I came to this team and this is the playbook we're running and it works for us. It's a good playbook. Thank you. Joe, closing. The cadence is a coaching schedule. Okay, we're going to do this this week. Then we're going to have a pipeline meeting. Then we're going to have a ride-along. And when you do all of that, there are opportunities to make sure everybody's doing the right things to ensure that that business is going to close. Don and his team really believe in that cadence. They believe in the coaching opportunities it brings them. It's a great way to go. The proof is in the numbers. I want to thank both Don and Joe for sharing what the Baker Pathways to Growth system looks like and Don for you sharing what AVI Systems has done in implementing it. 
This is also a testament to your leadership for selecting the Pathways to Growth approach using the playbook and consistently delivering. So thank you for sharing your brilliant success story. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you for having me today, Joe. Thank you. Joe, can you close out by telling our listeners where they would find Baker Communications? Yeah, our website is www.bcicorp.com. And you can find information on the homepage about our Tailored Fit program. That's really our assessment program. And we're glad to do that for free as a proof of value. If you go in and look at our blogs, you can sign up. We post blogs out every week. Brilliant. Thank you both. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We'll be back in another two weeks with our Distinguished Sales Leadership Series. 